Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. For our audience worldwide on TV and radio, we begin with the big issue, the gamification of stock markets taking center stage. Lawmakers growing increasingly concerned about distortions in the marketplace, especially within crypto and the new phenomenon known as the meme stocks. That's where our next guest comes in. Gary Gensler, the 33rd chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Gensler served as the chairman of the CFTC under President Obama and working for nearly two decades at Goldman. He joins us now exclusively for his first interview on this network in his new role alongside Bloomberg's Tom Keane joining us too. Gary, great to catch up and thank you for joining us for the next 10 minutes. I just want to start with your statement, your mission statement. To meet our mission of protecting investors, that's the first line. Gary, what do you do for a group of investors that don't want your protection? Well, look, I'm, I'm going to be animated every day in this job by working families. Uh, and working families need the protection. And Franklin Roosevelt knew this in the 1930s. We know this now. President Biden knows it. It's, it's about working families ensuring they get the disclosure so they can make their choices in the markets. And there's a cop on the beat uh, protecting against fraud and manipulation. That helps companies raise money, too, by the way, by lowering the fraud manipulation ensuring that there's consistent disclosure to those investors, I think companies benefit as well. Disclosure is a broad concept, so let's narrow in on that. Where specifically do you think we need more disclosure? Well, I think there's trillions of dollars of assets under management now calling for greater and consistent disclosure around climate risk. And when I've also asked staff to take up uh, disclosures around human capital, the, the, the most important, really fundamental asset of a company uh, the people that work there. Uh, Gary, thank you so much for joining John and I uh, this morning. I'm going to go broader here, Gary. I have never seen a primal cry for an SEC commissioner to just do something. You mentioned something I mentioned an hour ago, which is FDR. I'll go to the Commonwealth speech early in the Depression. There is a primal screen chairman to do something. What is the do something you want to do to help us with meme stocks, with SPACs and other things I don't understand? Well, Tom, you're, you're, you're being a little immodest. I'm sure that you understand them a little better than that. And your listeners have listened to you for years. But look, what I think the important thing is, is investors want to know there's somebody looking after them, working families, pensioners, people that have 401ks. So you mentioned special purpose acquisition companies or so-called SPACs. <clears throat> it's really making sure that the sponsor who's behind that is fully disclosing their uh, take on it. These are very expensive, dilutive products. I mean, the sponsors take out a chunk at the beginning, then there's more being taken out later when they merge with a private company in what's called a DSPAC. I just call that a a target IPO. And it's those disclosures ensuring that the retail investors get the right disclosures and are protected and somebody's not misleading them. And secondarily, that they're participating just like the the institutional investors. And a lot of the big institutions buy into these SPACs later during that target IPO. 
and they do so at a preferred price rather than the price the retail public's getting. Chairman Gensler, long ago and far away, we had a red herring. We all read them you know, differently ourselves. I start at the back and see the character and the integrity of the people involved. And as you just mentioned, you go up to that single page on dilution to see how bad the new shareholders are being taken. Do we know the dilution? Do we have transparency on SPACs or, frankly, on other challenges you have? Do we have visibility on these key issues right now? No, I've asked staff to think across our whole markets. You know, technology rapidly changes finance. Fair. And so there are rules sometimes put in place 50 years ago, for instance, on beneficial ownership. Congress said if you went past 5% and you had an intent to, to uh, control a company, you had to disclose. But they gave you 10 days. And we've been given authority to shorten that. Well, Technology says we can shorten that. Shouldn't shouldn't the whole market know if somebody has tripped that five percent wire? So I've asked staff to think about these types of disclosure in stock buybacks, in something called derivatives, called sh- securities-based swaps, and yes, in these special purpose acquisition companies as well. Uh, the dilution, the cost, and the like. Well, Gary, this situation, this conversation brings up the episode around Archegos. What have you learned from that event and what does it mean for disclosures from family offices? Well, I think that the events of March around the family office do raise uh, questions about the exclusion of family offices. But to us at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, we're going to I've asked staff to lean in how we can have more disclosure about these derivatives, securities-based swaps. We have a a reform regime that my predecessors put in place that goes live in November of this year for more disclosure. But I think we need to also aggregate some of those holdings so people again know, have you tripped that 5% line? Uh, and uh, we didn't have that disclosure in, in the Archegos matter. Gary, one of the great joys of you, and I think everybody that is politically with you, and frankly, you're uh, people a little bit, little bit off the Gensler belief, they all have an immense respect of how you have lived Wall Street through your storied career. Great. John and I have talked about this before. That's all great about derivative transparency, but the street is set up based on mystery. And based on the unknown, how are you going to force, and I'll pick on two familiar names, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, to display and make visible their derivative holdings? Well, look, because uh, the public's ultimately represented by those of us in the official sector, and whether it was President Roosevelt in the 1930s, President Obama with the passes of Dodd-Frank, uh, and, and multiple presidents in between with Congress, we have laws that help our capital markets and help those working families. And our client, you know, my client are those working families, those those retirees that want a cop on the beat and rules. So, yes, whether it's a large firms that you've mentioned or other large firms, we have the authority to bring such transparency and we'll put things out to notice and comment. Folks will be able to say they think it's a good idea or not. We'll look at the economic analysis. But overall, uh, we'll be looking out for our ultimately our the American public, who are really our clients and, and President Biden's uh, clients, ultimately. If you're tuning in on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV, we're catching up with the 33rd chair of the SEC, Gary Gensler. Chair Gensler, let's continue this conversation around Archegos. Tom and I had a difficulty for about a month, knowing what to call Archegos. Was it a family office? Was it a fund? Was it an asset manager? How would you describe it? 
Well, I don't want to get into any one company because you can imagine uh, the reasons why not. But um, large funds investing in our market are required to still play by the rules, our anti-fraud and other rules and various disclosure rules. But I do think that we at the SEC can do more work here. So that's why I've asked staff to have more disclosure rules related to these uh, contracts that that entity was using. They're using something called securities-based swaps. And Congress in 2010, in the reform movement after that crisis of 08, uh, passed rules that said, yes, the SEC can bring greater disclosure. In fact, it's not even once in what's called Dodd-Frank, but twice in two different provisions. So uh, I had meetings even yesterday with staff about, well, how do we stitch this together and try to put something in front of our five-member commission and get it out for uh, public notice? Gary, one set of disclosures that we haven't discussed today are things around the climate, around gender diversity, as well. And in the limited time we have left with you, I think we need to talk about that as well. Republicans have really pushed back against your role in all of this. This is what 12 GOP senators wrote to you, the SEC, on June 14th. The push for more disclosure related to global warming has little to do with providing material information for investment purposes. Rather, activists with no fiduciary duty to the company or its shareholders are trying to impose their progressive political views on publicly traded companies. Why is that statement wrong in your view? So I have deep respect for the members of Congress, the senators who wrote that letter, and, and we've had some very good uh, individual conversations about this. I think it's, it's foremost about investors, and, and this is at our regime. Investors want to know more about this very important risk, climate risk, and how do companies deal with uh, whatever transitions might be in the future, whatever physical risks that they have, how are they managing it, how are they governing it, and what are some of the basic metrics. So investors want to see information, and then the role of the SEC is to try to bring some consistency, some comparability, mm-hmm. and yes, reliability to that information. And then investors benefit, and frankly, also the companies benefit because they get some they get some rules as to how to present it, and they also then can com- compete for capital in the capital markets right. based upon that ne- nexus. Uh, Chairman Gessler, I want to get a question in here. I know John has an important final uh, question as well. What I know for certain, Gary, is everything is free. There was one day where the Wall Street Journal had three consecutive ads, one page, next page, next page, of free trading on Wall Street. And all that's devolved down to the meme stocks and the order flow debate. What I know is the people that own order flow are in billionaires row in New York City on 57th Street. Does the SEC have a need to somehow remanage order flow and remanage the fiction of free trading? Tom, I'm glad you closed on that. It's not free. It just simply is. So it might be zero commission, but underneath that, some of these brokers, not all, but some of these brokers are then selling your orders to to another firm. uh, I'll call it a wholesaler. And when they sell that, why, why is somebody paying for it? It's because there's an inherent conflict that even if it's a penny or two pennies or some small fraction, that's trading off against you, the retail public. So it's not free. Now, what can we do about it? We're going to take a look at the whole equity market structure, the stock market. Some other com- countries, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, 
They've banned such payment for order flow. And so we're going to take a look closely at that. Also to look at when you're the retail public, when you put an order in a market order, it rarely goes to the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. It goes to these wholesalers. That segmentation matters to us, the public. Jay Gensler, I know you've got to run and your team is firing away emails telling us to let you go. So just one final question on this very important issue. You really push back against the language there. It's not free. Is that something you want to do something about the language specifically or is the priority the activity? The priority is the investing public. And so we're going to take a look at this and say what works best for them. Congress has given us authority to think about the efficiency of markets. And it's the efficiency for the big pension funds. It's efficiency for that person that's going on a platform, an app, and and trying to uh, save for their future. And so that's our priority. The language matters, but I don't think it's just about disclosure. I also think that there's inherent conflicts and we need to take a close look at at how we uh, reform these markets. Chair Gensler, thanks for joining Tom and I. We hope this is the beginning of an ongoing dialogue with you. The 33rd chair of the SEC, Gary Gensler, thank you, sir. Get right to it. Our interview of the day on the equity market. Mike Wilson has been just absolutely brilliant trying to go back and forth the nuances of the equity market in this great bull market. Mike Wilson with Morgan Stanley. Is the great bull market over? (laughs) No, I don't think it's over. Uh, I think this is, you know, the typical pause that we get as we go from early to mid-cycle. You know, peak rate of change, as John was saying, is what we've been focused on, not just for you know, growth measures, whether it be economic data or, say, earnings growth data, but also policy. You know, the Fed, you know, has, you know, kind of pivoted a bit to start the long process of, you know, removing monetary accommodation. They're not doing that yet, but the market, you know, keys off of that. And, you know, we've been focused on really money supply growth because in a world where you're on the zero bound globally, right, in every, mar- in every sort of major uh, market, the, the, the key determinant whether monetary policy accommodation is accelerating or decelerating is M2 growth. And M2 growth peaked at the end of February, early March, and has been slowly coming down. And that we think that has had a, a very large impact on the speculative parts of you know asset markets. Obviously, crypto is part of that. You know, very expensive, kind of unprofitable companies, SPACs, and things like that. They've corrected significantly because at the margin. Right. The accommodation has already been deteriorating. So, Mike, help us out when it comes to the debate away from the index level, within the index, the churn, the rotation, growth versus cyclicals. What does that look like for you and the team now? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the beginning of the year, obviously, the, you know, the, the call was rates were going to go higher. And that you know, took out the very expensive long duration assets. That was the, the beginning of the correction. Then it kind of shifted to uh, low quality names started to come off the boil. And now, look, the market's going after kind of the reflationary cyclical assets that probably ran up a little too far. But, you know, I think as Lisa said, there's just the, the inflows of money, you know, are still so good. It, the money doesn't leave the market. It just looks for another place to go. So recently, obviously, longer duration growth stocks have done better as rates have come down. And people say, well, if the rate of change is peaking, well, then I want to go where the growth is. So the market's being very efficient internally. The problem is it's very difficult to trade. Uh, for people because it's flip-flopping back and forth. And, and by the way, this is all normal during the mid-cycle transition. This is what always happens, 94, 04, 2011. You know, this is it. This is what you get. It's a chop, it's a churn, 
it's not as easy as it was over last year. We, you know, it's probably got another three to six months of this sort of pattern. Mike, could you draw a distinction between the rate of change in the money supply, the amount of cash just sloshing around the system, versus the actual amount, basically, that we still are climbing to new highs? We saw this catastrophic increase. I'm looking at the M2 chart right now on the Bloomberg terminal. Just fascinating to see how massive the growth has been. Why is that not enough to keep the rally going, given the fact that we're also getting the economic recovery? Well, I think it is keeping the, the rally going. I mean, you know, the index level, we haven't really seen any correction. What, what, you know, the, the change, the sort of rate of change uh, movement in, in M2 or whatever money supply growth you're looking at, you know, is causing the internals <clears throat> to move around a lot. Okay, so once again, you know, the, the deterioration in that money supply growth is causing the, the more speculative parts of the market to really underperform, whereas, you know, it's becoming a higher quality bid, you know, maybe the market's moving towards where valuation is more, you know, amenable. And, and so it's doing it that way. Until, you know, we see outflows from the equity market, the index level is probably going to be okay. It's just it's, it's a sideways chop. And, and so the, the action is in the internals of the market, not right. at the index level. Mike, when you talk to your analysts, and, you know, I don't know if you're doing this or they're doing it, but when you sum up S&P earnings, can you get out to a $250 statistic like some of the optimists? Uh, well, maybe in like five years. No. <laughs> well, okay, there's yeah, I mean, a shot, but do you mean that yeah, seriously? I mean, I, no, we, we think that's another risk here is that uh, the peak rate of change on growth has also been reached. And um, something we've been focused on a lot here, Tom, is that the first quarter benefited um, from, you know, two fiscal stimuluses that were enormous. It also benefited from, you know, the run-up in cryptocurrencies, which, you know, increased wealth by over a trillion dollars. And some of that leaked into the real economy. So what we're focused on, what we think is a problem potentially, is that people are now annualizing this Q1 from a margin and sort of earnings growth standpoint. And so we're, we're having a hard time, quite frankly, getting to 210 for next year, which is where the bottom mm-hmm. of consensus is. Part of that is because we're baking in some tax increases, but also we think the margin assumptions now have gotten a little too aggressive. So now we think the earnings story is also something that needs to be tempered back. Yep. And we saw the beginning of that last week with the financial <clears> stocks, some of the financials companies talking, you know, talking down guidance a bit, which is why those stocks underperform. It wasn't just about the rate curve, uh, the rate uh, yeah, yield John- curve flattening. This is the heart of the matter. John, I don't mean to step on you, but this is the heart of the matter. I I mean, you've got an earnings analysis, and every interview we do is different and nuanced, and it really is the heart of the matter to get through the summer. I remember the note that Mike and the team put out a couple of months ago around earnings season, Mike. It was execution risk. That's what you were discussing, execution risk. When it comes to margins, what is the cost pressure you're focused on, Mike, that you're worried about? Well, I think the one that we have to pay attention to the most, because this is the one that will probably cause the Fed to move more quickly or not, is, is wages, right? So labor is an enormous, you know, input to most companies' cost structures. And, you know, I think the transient, like the materials and some of the commodity stuff is somewhat transient because, obviously, it's self-correcting. You know, there's demand destruction. But labor, you know, seems to be a bit more structural, you know, we did destroy some of the labor supply in the pandemic and the lockdown. There's some people now retiring earlier, given the windfall of asset prices. And, you know, and, and also the movement of labor around the country, like, you know, where people don't live where they need to live to, to, to meet the job openings. And so that part of it, I think, is really important uh, to watch here over the next couple of months. What's the direction of the turn right now, Mike? What's set to outperform over the next three to six months? What's the best asset, you think? Yeah, what's the direction of the churn, of the churn underneath the, the headline number of the index? Well, I think, well, first of all, we're, we're pretty 
bearish at the index level because we're having a hard time getting much above 3,900, 4,000 by year end. So that's pretty punky returns at the index level. So, you know, once again, we're trying to make money at the, you know, at the stock level, at the sector level, trying to, trying to be a bit more nimble and tactical. Um, but we still believe in the reflation, inflationary story. So, I mean, banks and material stocks have corrected here recently. That's an area you can start looking back to go into. Um, the growth areas, I think you've got to be really selective in terms of what you pay. Um, we've been favoring the higher quality growth areas that are more reasonably priced. That would include some of the FANG uh, stocks. And then healthcare, we think, is a very interesting area where there's probably pent-up demand as opposed to a payback uh, in demand from last year because people put off healthcare uh, services and, and whatnot. So that's, those are areas that we're focused on right now. Uh, but we're going to continue to have an open mind and be flexible as the market changes. Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley. Mike, looking forward to getting you in the studio soon. It's good to catch up. The Chief U.S. Equity Strategist. It is a cheat guide for any guest that appears on Bloomberg Surveillance on radio and TV. When Tom starts to interrupt, keep talking. James Sweeney's back with us, I'm pleased to say. Credit Suisse chief economist. James, good to have you with us on the show. We're just continuing this conversation about the amount of uncertainty we have, the lack of clarity as we work our way through this reopening. When do you think we will get that? Is it the end of summer, the beginning of September? James, what's the date in your diary? Yeah, I, I think late summer we start to get... Uh, we, we get better information on the wage picture, and we could talk more uh, informed about uh, about services inflation given that wage picture. The, the problem right now is that with this reopening, with the checks just sent, with the base effects, with the seasonal effects, with the composition effects and the wage data, you, you can't really tell. But but I'll, I'll tell you what was hap- what was helpful in this Fed meeting is, is exactly that dropping that kind of debate about temporary, which was, which was lame all along, because that, was, that word was aimed at a straw man argument of very high inflation down the road, where professionals care about the path of inflation within this, and whether inflation could be a little bit higher and a little bit more volatile once we're through this whole pandemic event. And, and I think the, the incoming information suggests that that is very possible. The path is very interesting. Um, and a little bit higher inflation, higher wages, more volatility is, is possible, too. And I, and I feel like mm-hmm. the Fed is having that debate and they're acknowledging those risks now. And so let's please stop talking about temporary because, of course, the pandemic was temporary and we had special factors throwing inflation around. James Sweeney, where's the emotional number? I mean, for the people listening and watching, it's real simple. Uh, pros are framing 3% inflation, 4%, da-da-da-da-da. Where's the emotional number where the nation goes into a collective sweat? Well, I, I, I think for broad household inflation expectations, you know, that's actually not an inflation number. It's a spending number. It's, it's when you see house prices and, and car prices, you know, start to rip. When people are buying things because they think prices are higher in the future, but actually, the survey suggests that people are saying that they, they, it's a bad time to buy a house or a car because, because prices are higher right now. So I, I don't think we're going to get there. I think we're just going to have a little bit higher inflation, a little bit more volatile inflation. I think we're going to come down from this kind of temporary base effect peak. And the question is, how much wage growth, how much services inflation, and are we going to be running at you know, 2.2, 2.3 sustainably for, for a few years? Because if we're there... That's 50 basis points higher in core terms than the average of, of the last 25 years. And it's a pretty big deal. But to a lot of the straw man arguments about money supply causing runaway inflation, 
seems pretty boring. But the people in the bond market, that matters, and that's what we're focused on. James, you talk about higher used car prices. You talk about home prices. Has there ever been a precedent for the divergent experiences of individuals on the ground buying stuff and official measures of inflation? You know, I don't think so. And, and I, I think the, the reason is, you know, those inflation indices are two-thirds services and one-third goods. And services spending is typically remarkably steady, even in recessions. I mean, we, we've had two contractions in services consumption, I think, in 60 or 70 years before, uh, before this event. So you've had significant volatility in that side. So you have a lot of relative prices that have to adjust, as always. People in everyday life are more focused on goods prices than services prices, but the whole price complex is, is jumbled up by the specifics of this pandemic, and people should not lose sight of that. Also, James, the Fed has had a pretty aggressive role in the bond market with their bond purchases, which has raised some questions about the accuracy, the effectiveness of looking at break-even rates for market predictions of longer-term inflation. Do you think that there has been so much noise in Fed buying around those particular instruments as to render them much less useful as a gauge of the market expectation for longer-term inflation? I, I wouldn't blame Fed purchases. I think they were never a good gauge for, for longer-term inflation expectations. There's a risk premium in break-evens, and I never call break-evens inflation expectations. I call them break-evens. They're, they're, they're something different. James Sweeney, it's good to see you. It's good to catch up, as always. And our apologies for the disruption to the conversation. James Sweeney there, Credit Suisse Chief Economist. <laughs> It is definitive because it is wildly eclectic and controversial. That is a new edition of Foreign Affairs magazine. It is Can China Keep Rising? Dan Kurzweilin with his expertise on China and George Marshall of another time and place is with us this morning with an absolute tour de force. I picked up the magazine and I'm like everybody else. I, you know, I read the commercials, the advertisements, Dan, and then I go to the table of contents and this is wildly eclectic. I want you to inform our audience about the adversarial environment of Wang Jizhou. Who is he? Tom, good to see you. Wang Jizhou is this really fascinating figure. He's one of the people in China, one of the most respected analysts of the world of international politics in China. And he has for a long time been one of the most prominent Chinese advocates of a cooperative U.S.-China relationship. And so what we asked him to do, as someone who's been really supportive of cooperation between the United States and China historically, was to really to tell us from China's perspective, how does this deterioration in the relationship between the two countries, between the two superpowers, look from Beijing's perspective? We in the United States and in Europe know uh, exactly what we see uh, leaders in Beijing, especially under Xi Jinping, doing that looks menacing to us. We asked this Wang Jizhou, this advocate of, of a cooperative relationship, to tell us what that looks like from Beijing's perspective. And what he sees and what he, what he tries to convey to American readers especially is uh, a situation in which the United States, is, as he tells it, is really going out of its way to threaten some of the core interests of China on Taiwan, on, mm-hmm. on Hong Kong, some of the things that if you're Xi Jinping, you see as, as really integral to your power and your success. 
right. are sources of growing tension with the United States. The tour de force of your academics is George Marshall, not only with the chaos of China, but the chaos of U.S. policy in roughly 1946 and 1947. What is the chaos of President Xi's policy right now domestically? What are the challenges Xi has now as China attempts to keep rising? So that's a great question, and it's part of what really animated this set of pieces uh, that we put under the heading, Can China Keep Rising? If you go back to the beginning of this year, think about how good a position Xi Jinping seemed to be in. You know, the United States looked to be in political chaos. We just had the January 6th uh, uh, insurrection. Uh, The U.S. was struggling to control covid uh, China was shipping vaccines around the world. You know, just six months later, that picture has shifted almost entirely. You have Xi Jinping um, uh, really on the rocks over, you know, the origins of origins of the virus. And, you know, the, even if you leave aside the kind of lab leak questions, uh, the questions of what China failed to do and the ways it failed to communicate and suppress information in the early days of the outbreak in Wuhan. Uh, you have, um, you know, the U.S. And, and growth elsewhere in the West starting to really pick up and China not looking quite so good. You have a really terrible demographic picture in China. You have population slowing uh, pretty rapidly in a situation in which, you know, population is going to be shrinking quite soon. And the working age population is going to create a real demographic crisis in China. Obviously, there's one in in Western countries as well, but it's much graver from the Chinese perspective, given the, the one China policy that was in place for a long time. So if you're Xi Jinping, you know, what emerges from this set of pieces is this really kind of desperate, frantic effort to use a, a short window of time, a short period of time to uh, try to overcome some of these challenges. But what emerges through these pieces, whether you're looking at the fight against corruption, whether you're looking at economic reform in China, or the failures of economic reform, rather, whether you look at uh, Xi Jinping's attempts to really hold on to power for you know the, the indefinite future, yeah. you see him creating these real weaknesses in the system. And the question is, are those weaknesses going to emerge and, and drag him down and drag China down before they're able to overcome some of these problems? Dan, are you saying that China is in a much weaker position today than, say, pre-President Trump's reign and certainly pre-pandemic? Well, if you, if, you, if you go back to the beginning of Xi Jinping's reign, you know, go back almost a decade, uh, when you saw China that was starting to engage with the world more, that was trying to reform its economy, um, the narrative that we've seen in the West over this 10-year period from, you know, the first meeting between President Obama and Xi Jinping through Trump and now through Biden is a Xi Jinping that has really changed the fundamental direction of China in ways that I think people were a little slow to detect at the time. And for a long time, the narrative in the West has been um, one of this, you know, kind of march forward and this success uh, and this almost triumphalist narrative. And if you scratch below the surface again across all of these areas, uh, you see a, a pretty perilous situation and a, and a lot of risk for them um, that, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to overcome. And you have a, um, a, a pretty significant effort in Beijing to address these problems. But uh, the environment's only getting worse. And the question is whether, uh, you know, in, a, in an environment of U.S.-China tension, that's going to add that's going to add new challenges. Dan, how um, does public so sentiment how does public sentiment within China weigh into this? Because during uh, President Trump's reign, there was discussion about how sentiment actually improved for Xi Jinping internally in China. Has that changed, especially given some of the propaganda efforts uh, that Xi Jinping has put out there? So this is a really hard thing for any of us not, you know, sitting in China to 
to have a clear idea on there. You know, you've had predictions of the fall of the Chinese Communist Party for for decades and decades, and it's success. It's success economically. Uh, it's you know the tools it uses to suppress dissent has given it a grip on power that is probably pretty secure. What is most notable about public sentiment, uh, since you bring it up, is not what we know or have a tr- hard time knowing within China, but just seeing how dramatically the world has shifted against China. So you know again, if you look back four or five years, when views of China in the rest of Asia, in the United States, in Europe were you know reasonably good in many cases those have just t- soured so so quickly and so you know this period when um the you know uh, international of president trump the the covid the global economic situation should have given xi jinping a chance to really uh solidify global global leadership in some ways uh what you've seen instead is the world really turning against him and so it's this kind of staggering missed opportunity in many ways Dan Orville Schell graces your pages this month. He is a giant on the China Watch. He has seen the five or six Chinas since World War II, I think only of Jonathan Spence, who could keep up with Mr. Schell. His perspective mm-hmm. on the future of President Xi's China. So we asked we Orville Schell, who is one of the great observers of China and chroniclers of China in the United States and anywhere in the world at this point, to look back at the 100-year history of the Chinese Communist Party. China is going to have this big celebration marking this history. It's going to try to, very, to try to tell a very particular story of what the Chinese Communist Party is and what this history looks like. And when Orville looks back at this as someone who is, has lived it uh, you know, very, very directly and chronicled, chronicled it very powerfully over the last several decades, he sees a much more complicated story than the one Xi Jinping is going to try to tell us this summer. And, you know, Orville Orville's very sad about the course of China. He's sad about the uh, lack of access that people like him have to, you know, a country that they have traveled in and lived in and loved for, for many decades. Um, but, but he sees, again, a more uncertain future than that triumphalist, clear, uh, certain image that Xi Jinping is trying to purvey. So there is this tone of sadness to Orville's wonderful piece, but also a degree of hope that there will be changes in China that we're likely not anticipating right now. Dan kurtz great to catch up as always. Foreign Affairs Editor. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.